Hello, my name is Alex Stoltz and welcome to Film Disruptors, where we bring you the new business and art of storytelling. And today's episode is a great case in point because we are talking to Mike Brett. Mike is one half of the creative team behind Archer's Mark, a very innovative production company. And he's also the producer of Notes on Blindness, the award-winning documentary. We talked to Mike about his business model, about his experiences with Notes on Blindness, and then critically about his experiences as a virtual reality producer, because the Notes on Blindness VR experience is the most downloaded VR product to date globally. If you'd like to find out more, check out the home of Film Disruptors, alexstoltz.com, where you can download today's show notes, sign up for updates, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening. And now I'm going to hand you over to Mike Brett. And I started today's show by asking Mike about his career. Wow. I mean, uh, I'll try and keep it short uh, for the sake of your listeners. Uh, but yeah, it's been a pretty, uh, sir, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been a certain amount of circumlocution, shall we say, uh, between uh, when I left uni with a literature degree uh, too far back in the midst of time to really remember properly. But um, uh, what I what I did do was meet one of my uh, great friends and creative partners for the rest of my career, really, and Steve Jamison, who, with whom I founded Archer's Mark eight years ago. But I think both Steve and I, after the back of leaving uni, um, sort of went off and did what a lot of arts graduates do, which is wonder what the hell they should you know uh, do with their lives uh how to pay the bills etc simultaneously um he actually was an architecture graduate so i guess in simple terms we try to explain it as he does pictures i do words um uh, but i think there's much more to it than that and both of us actually went away. He uh, was a fine artist for some time. Um, I uh, was a, as a teacher. I taught down in Croydon uh, English Lit for uh, 11 to 18-year-olds, bizarrely, for the first two years of my uh, professional life. Um, ended up uh, sort of leaving that knowing I wanted to do something more creative and uh, and actually writing a couple of books on Shakespeare, as you do for students. Uh, um, and, and it was actually bizarrely, while Steve and I were both kind of uh, shuttling back to uni for various uh, football uh, commitments, because we both actually met playing football at uni, uh, that it sort of became clear that we were both uh, writing short films. Um, neither of us had a clue how to go about doing that, um, uh, and or nor how to produce them. So we kind of entered into a bit of a pact, which was along the lines of, if you help me make yours, I'll help you make mine. And sort of from there was born, at that stage, not Archer's Mark as a company, but I think a creative relationship that that sort of, you know, lasts to this day. And um, uh, what we both did was obviously make sort of incredibly navel-gazing, uh, sort of incredibly badly produced niche uh, short films uh, maxing out our credit cards and all of our begging uh, friends and, and family to help us out um, uh, I, but you know we, we learned how to make films by doing that uh, you know we weren't film school graduates we kind of learned by making our own mistakes for better or worse on set um, <laughs> nothing like shooting on 16 and 35 millimeter respectively on your first two shorts to, to learn the value uh, of not overshooting and thinking about what it is you're going to put on camera um, um, and actually what came out of the back of that was, um, well, luckily, uh, my sort of poverty stricken situation drove me into an ad agency to, uh, to earn a few quid doing the one thing I thought I could do, which was write. Um, and so I started writing commercial scripts, uh, for various people, um, which got a great response, but there was a general sense of, uh, you, you these, these are great, but you know, they're very ambitious. You can't make them for the money that's available. And, and I think 
eventually after sort of like prodding and pushing long enough i you know i managed to persuade them that yeah you can make them for the money that we have and me and my mate steve will have a crack um and um and what that meant was that i mean the first project we ever directed i have to so in a, in a commercial environment was uh, also something that we uh, did the creative for uh, shot uh, edited um and with the help of our head of production adam booth here at archers mark um produced um and i think we were actually literally cutting on christmas day uh, you know it was a kind of a complete labor of love um but what it did was it, it a established uh, a voice b uh, again those kind of practical filmmaking skills came to the fore and we actually learned through making mistakes through creating ourselves um but it also allowed us to start to build a side of the company archer's mark which was financially sustainable and i think anyone listening to this podcast will recognize how unbelievably difficult it is to carve out a career where you can make things that appeal to you creatively but also put food on the table and, and i don't mean to over exaggerate but you know the, the independent production in this country is is a staggeringly competitive um uh, sort of arena not least because it's there's so many talented people there but because there is not enough money being spent on great creative projects and that's not trying to blame the, blame the market or anything else and we can go mm. into that later but mm. but that's the reality you, you, that we're all operating in and and i think the beauty of from the off having a commercial arm to a business that with, with that, that ostensibly had creative aims was that it became our film school so we were constantly behind the camera but it also provided a level of stability and infrastructure and actually a small pot to invest in the projects that we really cared about as well um, which was kind of how we moved into feature film Right, that's a really uh, <clears throat> that's really interesting, and uh, the, the the Shakespeare uh, <laughs> Shakespeare <laughs> writing was unexpected. That's that's wonderful. Um, but the Archer's Mark side of things, I mean, that's um, you know, it seems like there's a lot of synergy between. Obviously, you've got the uh, you've got the commercial revenue, and when you say commercial, what are you are you working for brands? Are you working for other agencies? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the thing is, it's not a traditional commercials company. I think sometimes that's the sort of, I think there are some misconceptions sometimes when we talk about the commercial arm of the company. That we're not doing a whole load of massive above the line 30 second commercials for TV. Um, what we are doing is a lot of branded content, um, often longer form content, you know, so three, four minutes. You know, we've done 30 minute bits of content for brands. Um, and the irony is that actually there's a sort of demonization sometimes of commercial work, which is the sort of implication that if you have a brand involved, then, then there's no way you can possibly do what you want to do creatively. I've actually often found that some of the the creative in inverted commerce projects that we've done outside of our commercial work, you've had actual different forces, market forces or politics within the organizations that, that can affect you creatively just as much as having a brand's point of view on something. And actually fundamentally it's, it's storytelling. Uh, and that's, um, and again, I don't want to sound sort of trite or, um, sort of reductive, but actually if you can convince someone, anyone of your ability as a storyteller, uh, then, then they will give you enormous freedom to do what it is that you want to do. And, and yes, there have been commercial projects that have been less successful than others, but there are things I'm really genuinely proud of um, that uh, that we've created as a company, uh, with the added bonus that that essentially any profits from those endeavours we're able to sort of divert back into the sort of purely creative, if you like, uh, development of, of projects that we we believe need to be made. Hmm. Really, uh, really fascinating and so, so just to go off on that tangent a little bit more um, the, the the branded side of things I mean uh, that's something which uh, I've often thought that there's there's a you know an untapped opportunity there for yeah. for more work you know relationships between brand and stories and 
films. Is that you know? Do you, do you see that as as there being oh, more man. more mileage there? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think what you need to kind of do is try and come to it without preconceptions. You know, if any studio deciding to make a movie is going to have massive say over the shape of a script and the people who are cast in it, you know, that the, the bottom line is that whoever ultimately is, is is underwriting these projects is going to have a lot of influence. And I think you just need to acknowledge from the off that whether that's a commercial, or whether that's a feature, those forces are in play. And so, absolutely. I mean, do I see budgets for commercials come across our desk to make a two minute piece of content and you think oh my gosh I could make a feature film with this absolutely um, and, and I think that there are, there is an untapped pool of finance there and, and more and more people are moving into that world um, I think Mother as an agency have been really interesting they obviously did Summerstown with Shane Meadows very early early uh, on with Eurostar and Eurostar did the incredibly smart thing of basically making their um, the visibility of their brand as small as possible in that film realizing that it was all about storytelling about Shane's vision um, and uh, and just being in some way associated with that um, so I think th- I think there's a lot more education involved in um, understanding what any investor might want in a film but I think that's true of any film I mean, my gosh I mean uh, haven't you met independent filmmakers who kind of cannot believe that the people paying for a film actually want an opinion about it you know that that happens all the time um, so yeah so I, I, do, I do believe there's there's a there's a there's more that could be done there and I also think that in terms of experimentation in terms of different forms you know there's so many different ways in terms of platforms in terms of durations in terms of uh, mashing different genres um, and so on and so forth there's so many different ways of reaching certain audiences that, um, now uh, that I just think experimentation is the way forward. And I think having an a- element of your business that allows you to experiment both creatively, but also from a sort of financial modeling point of view is incredibly valuable. I mean, you mentioned the VR project, which obviously we'll talk about later, but you know, we've, you know, first thing I ever shot underwater was for a commercial. First thing I ever shot from an airplane was for a commercial. You know, first thing I ever shot with a piece of motion control equipment was for a commercial. All those things that I've learned and I can now bring, um, to other projects that I make were all things that I learned in a commercial environment. You're listening to Film Disruptors in conversation with Mike Brett. And in this section, Mike talks about his experiences producing Notes on Blindness. So, notes on blindness. Uh, tell tell me, Mike, about how, how, how did how did that how how did this wonderful project or pro- projects? I don't know if you if you think about it as different different projects or all all under the same. And that's an interesting point, perhaps. But uh, tell me about how how you came across it and how you got involved. Yeah, well, I mean. Wow. Um, I got an email about four and a half years ago, maybe five years ago now in my, my life, um, uh, from Jojo Ellison, who was a full-time producer here at Archer's Mark. Uh, and her two good friends, Peter Middleton and Jamie Spinney, um, had made a short um, based on the audio diaries of a certain John Hull. Um, and she just thought I should see it because it was the kind of thing I might sort of get excited about. And I watched that short. It was two and a half minutes long. Um and you know when you have those moments where the sort of the hair on the back of your neck stands up, um, it was it was completely transcendental and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, and that short was actually called Rainfall. Um, it was subsequently several months later entered into Hot Docs and actually won Best Short Doc at Hot Docs. Um, but it was a single scene which has made it all the way to the feature film itself um, of John standing inside with rain falling around him 
talking about how acoustic space, um, sorry, talking about how he is able to interpret acoustic space uh, through the sound of rain falling and how he wishes that he could do that inside um, in order to, to sort of enlarge his, his perception of the world. Um, so, yeah, so that, that two and a half minute short was the first thing that I ever saw. Um, the guys had themselves been working on it for a year and a half, two years up to that point. Um, but we knew that there was two things. One, that this story was just phenomenal. Um, and two, that there was a story that needed to be told over considerably longer than two and a half minutes um, in, in, in the experience of John Hull. Now, um, what then happened, I mean, to fast forward a little bit, was we, we were able to set up um, with New York Times Opdocs um, a, a longer short of around 12 minutes, which allowed us to explore other uh, tracks in John's tapes um, and uh, create a, uh, an experiment, I guess, with both with cinematic form, with the lip syncing concept that we ultimately landed on for the film itself um, and various other aspects of John's story. Um, and that 12 minute short actually went on and won an Emmy Award uh, last year, 2014, possibly, actually. Um, uh, and, and I think there was, a, so there was a kind of dual development process going on here one was we needed to work out how do you make a film when you are starting with 16 hours of audio diaries and not a lot else um and number two how do you actually pitch that and how do you um raise the finance required to make what is an extremely ambitious piece of film because i mean obviously as you say it was lovely to get the best doc um award uh, at the biffers the other week but but i think a lot of people had trouble really actually defining what this film was and for us it always came very strongly from that non-fiction background that you know really harvesting amazing source material but actually we shot for five weeks uh, on what is almost a sort of period drama schedule you know, we had actors we had set builds we had vfx we had costume that's not a cheap thing to do so you're kind of simultaneously it's like probably the worst possible idea for a business uh, adventure which is you have you you have to raise money under the banner of a documentary but you have to spend it as if it's a drama so uh, it, it's really hard to squeeze out that value on on the screen and i think jojo did a phenomenal job she physically produced a huge amount of the film um in putting that value on the screen and really allowing the boys to go to places in john's imagination that that, that would be very 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 difficult otherwise to do that what what was the budget for the film uh yes yeah, so the budget uh Eight two one eight six seven. There you go. Okay. I can remember it like it's <laughs> seared on my retina. Catchy uh, number. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, was was the closing budget? I think I'm allowed to say that publicly, um, and certainly I think it's useful for other filmmakers to know that. I would say a couple of things. One is that we actually did have to. Um, uh, ring fence a certain amount of that budget for our French co-producer because when Arte came on board they actually mandate a French co-producer so there are costs in there that actually relate to a localization of the film for French and German audiences which aren't actually production costs so that's slightly frustrating you know when you're working with a number and you know that actually that's there's less you can spend because you have to ring fence certain things um, and the other thing I would say is that um, the BFI were phenomenal um, after we completed the film on that budget in, in terms of providing additional finance to create four extra soundtracks uh, for the film for blind and partially sighted audiences which I can kind of go into mm. later but we essentially decided that we wanted to make this film the most accessible feature film ever made um, he says sort of blithely uh, you know uh, uh, for blind and partially sighted audiences mm. actually beyond we did work with hard, hard of hearing uh, audiences too to try and make it accessible in that, that way um, and so yeah we did actually access additional funding from the BFI for that mm. well it's it's very much is in uh, in alignment with the BFI's 
goals of around uh, increasing access and diversity. So it's 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 definitely a good a good match for them. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, just just thought just a little bit more on, on the mm. financial structure of the film. I mean, how, how how did you finance it? You mentioned Arte. You mentioned the BFI. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, again, the most inadvisable mixture of funding you could ever come across uh, in that it kind of was, um, and by the way, a lot of the groundwork as well, I have to sort of give massive um, sort of uh, props to both Pete and James, not only creatively for having such a clear vision of what they wanted to do and um, and really kind of being cognizant of how they needed to uh, shape that into a fundable product, but also the relationships that they started, the conversations they started with various funding bodies that ultimately, you know, paid, uh, you know, paid off in the end. I mean, someone like uh, Cine Reach was a very interesting fund, obviously based in New York, amazing, amazing, amazing um, fund that really tries to understand, they, they understand production, you know, they actually, I think, believe produced and financed Beasts of the Southern Wild. You know, they understand how hard it is to get certain ambitious films off the ground and their finance comes in, in a shape that reflects that in that it was money that we were allowed to use to in the early stages of production when for example we might have lost cast if we hadn't been able to lock them in we might have lost locations that were literally getting knocked down uh we might have lost certain aspects of shooting we were able to go off and shoot pickups of certain times of year that we knew we weren't going to get in our production schedule we had that little bit of seed money from them which really really helped and, and um, to, to tell me more about the, yeah. i haven't come across Sydney reach so they are they're a commercial investor um or, or so? yeah Great question. Uh, they know they, the money. The money. The money is is softer. Uh, I th- actually, to be fair, I don't want to actually misquote them. I know okay. that they have different funds for different purposes, and the gr- the sort of the, the the grant that we got was of a, was smaller, but was much more flexible as a result of being smaller. You know, they didn't come in as equity partners. They didn't uh, expect a return on that particular tranche of money, but they were there to support to first time filmmakers who were trying to do something on a film that basically hadn't been done before, and that was by definition experimental. Mm. Um, mm. And I think, but that, uh, but I think that sort of it was kind of a, almost a bridge between late stage development and, and pre-production, right. almost that money, but it, but it allowed certain things to happen. I mean, we had to be closed. We had to know the film was happening. We wouldn't just give it to us sort of willy-nilly. But once we knew that the film was happening, they were the first to actually deposit funds into our account. I think mm. we've all been at that situation where everyone said they're going to give you money, but they haven't actually given you money. Um, and that's a problem when you're working to certain deadlines, schedules, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and yeah, so we obviously had amazing institu- institutional support from the BFI. Creative England actually came on even earlier, having previously supported the short film that went on to win the Emmy. Mm. So Creative England were very, very early uh, behind us. Uh, and that was great, obviously, because very compatible with BFI money. Uh, we then had two tranches of broadcast money, both from Arte and from BBC Storyville, um, uh, which is obviously great uh, to be able to kind of pre-sell in both those territories. And, and really, their kind of remit is to get the film on TV as quickly as possible. Um, that, that, was, that was complicated, just in terms of making sure that you still had rights and windows to sell to potential buyers of the film that would actually see your investors out, if that makes sense, because yes, yeah. that's always harder to do when you have broadcasters on board a theatrical dock. Yes. Yeah. So a uh, a finely <laughs> finely woven tapestry of uh, of, of finance and. Um, <clears throat> 
I guess not 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 uncommon uncommon for a, for an independent um, project like this, but that's that's really interesting. And, and I was fascinated actually to hear about the original short uh, that it was that rain falling scene because that for me was the pivotal scene in the film. Absolutely. I mean, look. Excuse me. I think number one, it's so cinematic. Uh, the way that John's dreams and flights of imagination uh can be brought to the screen is so exciting i think as a filmmaker i think that's why it originally turned the guy's heads but i think when you actually it's interesting when you come to the iteration of that scene that you see in the feature as opposed to the two predecessors to that i think what's exciting for me is that it's actually it, it, it is it has all the weight of those previous versions but it's actually great it, it's reached a new dimension too in that you see john standing in the doorway with his family in front of him talking about how he was lucky enough to have them as a foundation for his new life as a blind person. And so it's about not only perception in terms of how he sees the world or how he perceives the world rather, but, but that it is only with those human beings with whom he has an emotional connection and that support that, that he's able to even begin to go into that intellectual space in this experience of blindness, if that makes sense. It's mm -hmm. both an emotional mm -hmm. and intellectual journey. And I think that's why we always knew that there was a feature film here. Like, what, I mean, can you think of anything crazier than essentially a monologue of a guy talking to a tape recorder? Um, it, the, the, you know, what was amazing about the development process was we discovered the voices of um, – not only Marilyn, uh, but also the kids themselves, his parents, We it, it turned into a family film, a family saga and an emotional journey. And that's why we knew it kind of would sustain for 90 minutes. You're listening to Film Disruptors in conversation with Mike Brett. And in this section, Mike talks about his experiences producing the virtual reality Notes on Blindness experience. Mike, well, at what point did you guys say, "Well, let's why not? Let's do let's do a VR, <laughs> let's do a VR project as well." well how, how 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 on earth did that come about, and um, and, and at what at what point? Yeah, no. Um, uh, so I think again, um, a combination of kind of serendipity and kind of almost a kind of preordained vision from the guys if you like in that peter and james as soon as they engaged with the, the original audio material knew that this was something that uh, not only was inherently cinematic but certain aspects of which w were were not and and were amazing and transcendental and extraordinarily important but just simply couldn't be rendered in cinema and i think as soon as they realized that there were aspects of john's experience of blindness that that couldn't be put on the screen they started to look into transmedia sort of executions uh that could live alongside and could act as a companion for the film and i think that started very early in the process and i think the guys would themselves be very honest in saying that some of the first iterations that we all came up with were not the best uh were not the most convincing uh, and i won't run through the long list now but i think that we, they were always kind of banging their heads against the idea of how do we um, not just observe John's experience, but feel John's experience, mm. you know, and I think we were very fortunate for two reasons. One was that, um, 
we actually met Lily Bloomers from Arte uh, at, um, I think, Crossover Lab it was. Uh, and she uh, was the original point of contact at Arte. And she actually works on the interactive side of things over there. And Arte have a very, very strong presence in the interactive space. And so you suddenly had someone who was saying, we love the idea for the film. We also actually love the idea of doing something in a transmedia space as well. Mm. Um, and at this space, I would, I would add, it wasn't a VR project. It was mm. a multimedia project. Um, but VR was so nascent at that point. It's hard to imagine now just how quickly that, that technology and the adoption of that technology has kind of come about. Like, so, how, so how long ago was this? Oh my gosh, I know you're asking. Probably 2014, February, right. I think, around okay. that time right. was when we had really kind of solid interest from Arte. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but at that stage, you know, like gear was not available. Samsung VR gear was not available really uh, uh, to consumers, certainly. And it was only once we were kind of actually had Arte on board uh, that not only uh, did we then have an incentive to really start shaping what that kind of interactive part of the project was, but also we had we were introduced to phenomenal partners in the shape of, shape of uh, Ex Nilo, who were our um, Parisian co-producers uh, on both the film and the VR. Um, and uh, it became very clear working closely with Arno Colinar there that um, that the VR was the perfect medium for this, um, and so yeah. But 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 intriguingly, obviously, if you bear in mind that the film itself had been kind of like gestating for probably at least a couple of years, probably longer before that, uh, the the VR had to happen pretty quickly, um, and it had to uh, adapt. Uh, very quickly as well in terms of delivery formats, technological advancements. How do you make this thing? How do you get it out? And how do you synchronize that with the release of a feature film? A lot of difficult questions kind of happening simultaneously. Mm. Yes, quite. Yeah. Uh, and so where, where, where to start Where to start on all of that? Um, so I suppose firstly, it was conceived in tandem with the production of the yeah. movie. Uh, but... It was its own separate project with its own finance. Well, but who who was who was in creative control of the the project? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I you know, I think again, I cannot I cannot sing highly enough the praises of Arno and also um, Amory Labert of Audio Gaming in Toulouse, who also um, led the programming on, on the VR project. Yes. In that they they understood that Peter and James had an encyclopedic knowledge of John's material and also an understanding that simply couldn't be bettered in terms of what was appropriate for VR and what wasn't. And, and I think the guys are always the first to say that they were novices when they came to VR. But actually, they were complete naturals. You know, they knew exactly what material should be adapted, what shouldn't. Uh, they uh, offered incredibly strong creative direction for what they believed the experience should encompass. And the sort of genius of Arno and, and Amory was to really fully understand and also to help bring them into the conversation about what was technically possible you know what was technologically possible mm-hmm. um and therefore how best to um exploit those ideas so i mean it really was without one to sort of sound sort of ludicrously sort of um um sort of sickly sweet about it all the, the, that relationship was absolutely pivotal without that level of communication mm-hmm. and sort of mutual trust that, that this project could have been a complete mess to be honest when when people kind of say they want to be vr filmmakers i i i, I applaud the sort of ambition and the sort of creative um, experimentation that that's going to require, but but having people with amazing technical backgrounds who can really, uh, I guess, give you tracks to run on. Do you know what I mean? Mm. To understand the medium in which you're working, I think is just phenomenally important. Mm. Mm. And who 
funded or how or how was the VR financed? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, in simple terms, almost entirely out of uh, France and the US, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because I think the institutions of this country, and I think they're changing, but I think the institutions of this country weren't really set up to, to support a project like this. Um, but secondly, uh, because that uh, we had Arte on board. Um, I mean, where to start, really? I mean, VR, the, you know, everyone knows what the debate around VR is now is, is, is how do you find an audience and how do you monetize something? Uh, mm. And when you have a broadcast like Arte, which is itself interested in audience development and education, you, you answer two of those questions simultaneously because they have an existing audience base and they have an interest in bringing new forms of media to that audience so for them although they won't uh, necessarily they, they have, i guess that what i'm saying is they don't have the same incentive or the same necessity to recoup that investment because mm. it's kind of built into what they offer as a, as a public service broadcaster um to, coupled with the fact that france is actually a very um uh, good environment in terms of um development funds uh, vr funds um tech funds so we so we, we were able to also access um the cnc um, which I guess is, I, I guess the closest you can compare it to would be something like a BFI. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a combination of almost like a BFI plus a kind of tax credit incentive sort mm-hmm. of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which which allowed us to kind of access those public funds and, and some also in, in the south of France where, where Amory was based as well. Um, and then finally, we were, the kind of cherry on the top, I guess, was that the Tribeca Film Institute um, made us one of their three grantees, uh, I think in 2015, for their Tribeca New Media Fund, uh, which was a decent whack of money. Money, but also just the prestige of having, you know, um, a festival like Tribeca, um, kind of particularly who are so strong in the in the interactive space, sort of give the rubber stamp to the creative vision behind the VR project. Really, really helped us as well. And can I ask what the budget was? Uh, now, I guess, yeah. Uh, I mean, like all indie projects, uh, the budget. Uh, unfortunately means that no one actually got paid off it from our end. Uh, you know, like the producers and the creators got buttons. Uh, it was, I, I can say it was in the several hundred thousands. Um, is, that, is, that, is that pounds or? Uh, sorry, um, euros. euros. Euros, yeah. Um, um, so in that sense, you know, it was properly funded, but we are talking about nine or 18 months of continuous production production mm. um uh and actually creating around 20 25 minutes of content so that is a lot mm. um and it's real-time 3d animation as well it's not a linear, linear video i think sometimes there's a misconception from the top that that vr is a 360 video that is not what we created it's almost the the, the workflow is actually more akin to a computer game a video mm. game but that's a that's a lot of money um in to recoup um but yeah but, but it sounds like arte and those guys it, it was recruitment i suppose at this stage on, on a vr project it's, it's really yeah. really really difficult anyway right because it's not the market penetration yeah. Yeah, and also I think again we need to again be really careful about you know how do you exploit a film project? How do you exploit a film? You know you need to start slicing it in lots of different ways. You know mm. you exploit a film theatrically, you exploit it via home entertainment. You know mm. VOD, DVD. Uh, you can retain the IP and exploit the story world in other ways. Like the same thing is happening and needs to happen and the point is that we need to be uh, not trying to be too simplistic about the concept of um, uh, recouping uh, money in VR exploiting the value of a VR project financially in the same way that we aren't with film we're very sophisticated about how we distribute film and how we sort of salami slice rights and whether it's a theatrical window followed by a home end release a TV broadcast etc etc 
actually the same potential um, is there for VR. You know, you can do a mobile release, which is a blanket release, which is universally accessible to anyone with a smartphone. Mm. Um, but it's actually not a great experience. It's the equivalent of, you know, watching The Revenant on your phone on the tube. You know, mm. that is not that is not how that film was intended to be seen. And so you do want to go to Oculus Rift first and sell that version of, uh, you know, in full 4K with higher levels of interactivity and then go to the window on the Samsung Gear or some other linear video format. You know, there, I guess my point is that, mm. again, we're sort of talking about VR as if it's this kind of monolithic lump. Mm. It's you need to bring a much, much greater level of sophistication to our understanding of how those things are financed, recouped, and so on. Mm. At this particular moment in time, we're in that kind of audience development phase where certain players like Arte uh, and so forth are prepared to say recruitment is less important than audience development. And I think even you know the big players like Oculus and Google and so on are still in that phase because if they don't have an audience, they've got no one to sell to. Mm. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of releasing a games console with three games. A games console is only as good as, as the games that are available for it. Um, and I think that's kind of where you see these different platforms uh, emerging. Uh, and there are ways for VR filmmakers to monetize those platforms, for sure. Mm. I mean, are you able to t- tell me some numbers? I mean, when you, when you first released it, yeah, was it was it did, was it priced free download? No, no, it's freely, freely available. And yeah, I, yeah and I, to that to that point, yeah. Sorry, I mean, I think the other the other thing is as well that you know, I think well, two things. One is I think that clearly um, the huge advantage to Arte was that having a, sort of a, a a UK film with backing from major institutions, mm. uh, releasing theatrically um, with you know with you know a, a prime uh, venues uh, in in the UK meant that it, you know there's huge opportunity there to get that that project out to people um so in in many ways what we decided to we kind of made a call that that the global worldwide release the vr project was going to be sync uh, you know sunk up with uh, the release of the film theatrically in the uk because we kind of felt that was the biggest bang that yeah. was on most um it was free it was freely available on the oculus store and that meant essentially at that point it was just for gear vr so it wasn't an oculus version because there was neither the time nor the money to create an oculus version which i guess in retrospect is definitely something we would change for the next projects right. um, because that's really your opportunity to monetize is to kind of sell through the um you know for rift i think at this particular moment or indeed for vibe you know through steam or you know um um, you know the other the alternative platforms to rift but that kind of high end you know essentially if you buy one of those high-end pieces of kit now you will go online and buy every single decent piece of software for those because there's just a dearth of it around Hmm. whereas we weren't able to do that at this point so made it available for free um i'm not allowed officially to tell you figures but i can tell you mm. it is the most downloaded projects ever on the oculus store which for uh, a project about uh, a guy going blind is i think it tells you something about the level of take-up there has been of that project wow. um, but i also think what's interesting about it is that even if it's not an oculus experience i think what we really learned very quickly was that certain people were very very good at understanding the 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 opportunities for exhibiting and curating it in a way that made it worth paying for. So, for example, we did a summer pop-up with TIFF, uh, with Toronto, uh, where they were selling tickets to um, the best curated uh, VR projects in the world, of which this was one. Um, And people wanted to go in an environment where there were proper headphones, noise-cancelling headphones, in a swivel chair so that you could properly use 360 degrees of experience, um, you know, and and with a technician who could help you if you had any problems, because it's quite an intimidating format. Um, and I think that, you know, we had we did the same at the Edinburgh Fringe where we actually played as part of uh, yeah, the Edinburgh Festival up um, uh, at the showrooms, I believe it was there, in, in, and several uh, VR cinemas where everyone has got their 
own headset, but it's synchronized to the all watching it simultaneously um, and having slightly different experiences, but all experiencing fundamentally the thing at the same time. There are loads of opportunities to actually sell tickets to an experience. And mm. I think this should very much be informed by um, things like secret cinema, you know, secret experiential mm. cinema, uh, performance cinema. If you look at like Punch Drunk and, and uh, organizations like that, um, uh, are more and more looking at how technology and performance intersect with one another. And I think that where VR and AR has an amazing advantage is that there is opportunity to monetize through those realms rather than just simply downloads. You're listening to Film Disruptors in conversation with Mike Brett. And in this final section, Mike gives his advice for the emerging filmmaker or storyteller. No, I'm really glad as well that you sort of talked about it more broadly and you're not saying you want to be a film director, you want to be a VR director because it doesn't, it doesn't in my experience, it doesn't work like that. Um, if you're an intrinsically creative person, you know that you need an outlet, but you might not know yet what the outlet is nor how to make that sustainable. Like um, I did all sorts of other things or jobs, uh, frankly, anything, um, you know, um, to pay the bills while I gained experience, while I kind of, uh, wrote some terrible short stories, wrote some terrible scripts, like really had a chance to indulge creatively in, in various sort of failed ventures. And I think I'd say, a keep an open mind, like definitely, sorry, let me, let me, let me really, really confuse things. Have a really good, clear idea of where it is you want to go and then keep a really open mind. Because I think with Steve and I, when we first started, we always said we wanted to make feature films and we spent the first few years of our careers together, not making feature films. Mm. Um, but that was, all done even though it was a, a circuitous route to where we wanted to get to the experience gained and the knowledge gained made the films that we made far better when we got there and what we didn't do is allow ourselves to get distracted to the point where actually you forgot what it was you wanted to do in the first place um i would say also just persistence just like i don't know it's sort of a real sort of like obvious thing to say um but i do think some people sort of rock up and expect you know the world to owe them a living and it's really hard it's really really hard this business it's really competitive um and that's the third thing is just just make something like and just go and make something because i we get a lot a lot of communications from people telling us how wonderful they are but it only takes 30 seconds of watching something that someone's done for you to know that they've got potential or they could do something even greater than that and i think um and you know back in the day when we started out we actually had to and I'm not joking. I mean, I spent every penny I had and more. And, and believe me, as a sort of ex-teacher, there was not a lot of it on, on funding my own short film to shoot on 16 mil and paying for proper crew. Like now, what you can do with a DSLR, you know, and, and free software um, is is phenomenal. And you should be able to communicate your creative instincts and your creative potential um, relatively cheaply, which I think is an amazing, amazing democratizing thing. Um, on that side... To go even further, I think if I'm uh, the the sort of the the downside of that is obviously just the sheer level of competition, the amount of stuff that's out there, and that's why I think being really smart about distribution. It sounds weird. You're a creative person. Why should you know about distribution? Because frankly, you'll either a get taken advantage of, or b people won't see something really great that you made. And I think that the you know the possibilities of digital distribution now are 
are just incredible and the ability to get your story out there are phenomenal so not only go make something but try and get people to see it um because that's also like again you know i think my first short film must have been seen by about you know six 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 men and a dog um i didn't learn anything about audience as a result of that experience you know i think that for, for better or worse making a lot of commercials you know the ones that are good and that aren't but when you see responses and reactions to those things you learn as a storyteller how, how to sort of evolve and develop as well Mike, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. And, and I do want to say as well, like, please, please, like, uh, I'm not a guru. Like, do you know what I mean? I'm three, I'm three films into what I hope is a long career and one VR project. And, but, uh, but, um, so I don't want people to kind of think I'm a guru. I think if anything else, I'm an example that it is possible without any training uh, and with a bit of bloody mindedness and a best mate and a willingness to pick up a camera and go and make something that you can actually, you can actually get by in this industry. So I, d- I definitely want people to feel as well that this is not in any way a distant dream if you kind of really stick your mind to it. Amazing. Mike, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Pleasure. Thank you so much indeed, Alex. Cheers. If you'd like to find out more, check out the home of Film Disruptors, alexstoltz.com, that's S-T-O-L-Z, where you can download today's show notes, sign up for updates, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon.